Top MMA voices Ariel Hawani, Chuck Mindenhall, and Pizza Carroll are live on the Spotify Greenroom app for every major MMA card with the Ringer MMA show. Hear the guys react to weigh-ins in real time and find out what they think of the fights the moment the final card ends. Plus, when breaking MMA news happens, they'll be live to talk to you about it. And if you miss the Green Room show, you can hear it as a podcast anytime on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Mismatch, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states or 18 plus in D.C. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Today's episode of The Mismatch is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Offer valid for new and eligible returning subscribers only. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. Hey, thank you for listening to The Void. Today we get on Nikias Duncan, one of my favorite writers and podcasters. He's the co-host of The Dunker Spot with Steve Jones. You late with Jasmine Watkins. He's a writer at Basketball News, analyzes and comments on the NBA on Twitter, at NBA. Great Twitter follow, except for your succession threads. Because <laughs> I don't know how you managed to tweet while watching a show like that. I, my brain is not capable of doing that, Nikias. How are you doing today? <laughs> I am doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, as far as I, I don't know, like I like. To, <laughs> How do you do it? I can't. I, I don't know. Like it helps me center myself, I guess, because it's easy for me to kind of zone. I guess it's just an ADD thing. But like I don't know, it like helps me stay focused. And also, like people tend to enjoy my live tweeting experiences for whatever reason. Like I don't know why. Like I did something similar with Game of Thrones when I did that, and like. Nine days, I think, is what it was, which would not Nine recommend that. To, would not friends. recommend that to anybody. Oh yeah, God. that is objectively a terrible idea. Never uh, watched how, that. How much. long for uh, Succession was it? All three seasons for you? A couple days, one day. <laughs> 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 nah, I had too much work to get done. I think that ended up being. I think it was like a week, which is still insane. But uh, I got through it. I think I'm pretty good at multitasking, but you are elite. It makes me feel dumb. Uh, <laughs> you are smart. That's why I wanted to talk to you today. We're going to cover a lot today. A lot of what you've actually been doing uh, over at Basketball News. And I guess we'll get started off at the top of the Eastern Conference with the Miami Heat. Uh, they lead the East right now for best record in the East. Number three offensive rating in the NBA. Number eight defensive rating. And they've done this despite Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry, Bam Adebayo, and Tyler Hero playing only 12 games together. Uh, Eric Spolster said on Tuesday that Hero's back from protocols and he should be playing in Wednesday night's game against the Knicks. How have the Heat been able to sustain all of the success despite so many guys, key players being in and out of the lineup all year long, including Kyle Lowry right now? 
I don't know how controversial of opinion this is, but like this is Eric Spolster's best coaching job. I think it starts there because it's one thing to, you know, try to plug holes with uh, with role players and empower guys like that's obviously a part of coaching. But Spo has had to do that while also shape shifting on both ends of the floor. Like this is a team that it's been post split heavy. We're going to grind you out with a bunch of back cuts. This is already going to go ISO heavy. We're going to grind you down and get into the paint. They lose all of their stars or all-star adjacent players. And it's like, all right, cool. We're going to bomb 43s a game. And then there was the stretch of December where they broke their franchise record for threes made. Like it felt like every other game because that's how they had to win. And defensively, it's okay, cool. We have all our guys. We're going to switch a whole bunch. We're going to mix in some drop coverage. We lose Bam. All right, cool. We're going to show, we're going to have bring Dwayne Detman in. But instead of going with more drop with him, we're going to show him above the level of the screen. We're going to trap with Dwayne Detman. Deadman goes down too. All right, we got your seven. We're going to go pure drop. We're going to mix in zone too. And it's just like, how are you able to press all of these different buttons? And then it flows into the guys that are actually stepping up. Omer Yurt seven has stepped up at center. Caleb Martin. I, I was in Miami for their win over the Milwaukee Bucks in early December. So I was there for Caleb Martin hitting, I think, six threes in the game. And it's like, wait a minute. This is not at all <laughs> what I expected. Gabe Vincent, who finally has put it together offensively, because the defense has been there since he's been in Miami, but we just didn't know if he was going to be able to uh, score. Three-point shot fell, more comfort getting downhill. He's plugged in holes when Kyle Lowry's been down. It, it's just been up and down the roster, and I think it does start with Eric Spolstra empowering his guys and also just doing whatever needs to be done scheme-wise. Like, and it's been... Wholesale changes on both ends of the floor. Even a guy like Max Struess coming in, even finishing some games over Duncan Robinson at certain stretches in December. I mean, it, it, with Eric Spolstra integrating all these guys, I'm also amazed from the players and their adaptability to really, I mean, flourish in all of these different types of schemes. That's a testament to their ability as well. And also the front office for targeting guys who, you know, are smart basketball players and that can take on all of these responsibilities. Yeah, it seems like low-hanging fruit to get not only good players, but to get smart basketball players. But that's what Miami does. Like, as much as you talk about heat culture and how much conditioning plays a part, and it does, <laughs> like, it also, it does require, I'm going to sound like a J. Cole fan, but it does require a certain level of intelligence, ideally, to play in Miami because Eric Spolster would throw curveballs at you. Like, you will be forced to do different things and thrive different roles. Another guy, P.J. Tucker, what he's been in Houston and Milwaukee, it's, hey, Shoot corner threes, defend all over the place, crashed off into glass if you're in the dunker spot. Cool. Miami loses Bams. Like, all right, PJ, you're going to be the hub where we're running post splits now. And it's just like he he's done it. And so you have to be able to be, you have to be a multifaceted basketball player to thrive in Miami. And they've done a great job of targeting those guys. Spo has done a great job of empowering those guys. And those guys have played well. And that's why Miami's sitting at the top of the East right now. With NBA nowadays, like so much of the talk with basketball is versatility, like switching screens, being able to play on the inside, on the outside. Um, and I think with Miami, they kind of show the importance of the, the ability to play a variety of different schemes. You need to have versatility. We saw that with the Bucks last year, making their run of the NBA Finals. They could play their drop coverage with Brooke Lopez. They could also play switching. They could play with smaller lineups or bigger lineups. The ability to play different styles is of the utmost importance. And I think with Miami... As you said, like they've been able to plug and play different guys into the lineups, regardless of who's been out. I mean, like Omer Yurt seven coming out of nowhere. Like you said, Gabe Vincent figuring it out. Max Struess. There's so many guys. Caleb Martin. Um, like with this team, I, I, I think that's why I, Chris Vernon before the year said that he picked them to go to the NBA Finals, and 
he was right about them. But I think I underestimated just how much this team could just shape shift into different styles. And like, is that kind of the from a team standpoint? Is that is that what teams should be striving for now? Is the ability to just be different, regardless? Uh, uh maybe you either are when you're different, you're doing one of two things: you're forcing the opponent to adjust to you, or you're adjusting to the opponent with what they do. I think Miami can do both of those things, and that that's going to be critical for them come postseason time. Yeah, I think that's the hallmark of a team, especially nowadays, which you know as much as the versatility is important, like that versatility is important because the league has changed so much over the last 10 years. And so with that, you've kind of had to adapt those different styles just to stay in the running at the top of the league. And so I think it's less about, you know, we're just going to be super dominant in this one style. Good luck matching up with us. Like that can work in a very specific context, but it's more foolproof if you're able to shapeshift. And I think the Milwaukee example is apt because, you know, defensively, they were, I think, number one, number one, and number two in defensive rating when Bud first got there, running primarily drop, and they kept running into issues in later rounds because once teams were able to counter that with, you know, a hot run of shooting or just good shooting overall, or if they just found particular matchups they wanted to attack, Milwaukee didn't really have a counter for it. And then you fast forward to last season, like, drop was still their main ingredient defensively, but because they could shift to switching or because they could downsize, like, they had enough of a counter to complement what they do well. And so at the very least, you need to be able to do that. And what makes Miami special this year, it feels like it doesn't matter what they do, they can do it equally as well. And so that's what makes them a dangerous team at least if they're able to get some semblance of healthy. Right now, they're without Kyle Lowry, who's not with the team right now. He's back in Philadelphia, I believe, with family. Um, you know, Jimmy Butler's handling more playmaking uh, without Lowry there. What type of balance does Lowry provide to this Heat roster that they might have lacked in past seasons? He gives them some juice. Like he, particularly in the transition attack, just... They get a defensive rebound, quick outlet to Lowry. He's pitching the ball ahead 60 feet. Like, and even if it isn't something as flashy as that, after a miss or after an inbounds, like he's watching him after a make is fun. Make a shot, he's pushing Miami's getting into their action with 20 seconds on the shot clock instead of 16. And like even that difference, considering what Miami likes to do in the half court with their splits, with their cuts, even with their they're mixing in more Spain pick and rolls this year, which is you know, music to my ears personally. But hey, that's your favorite play. <laughs> you love Spain pick and roll more than I, I think anything in the world. There we go. Best set in the league. But like, even with them sprinkling in more of those actions, like the fact that Lowry gets them into the action faster allows them to flow into different things if it doesn't work. And half court offense in general was my question mark about Miami heading into the year. I was like, okay, like they've added Lowry. They're going to have Jimmy. They're going to have Bam. Let's see what the shooting looks like around that. But what is it going to look like when the game slows down? Lowry kind of prevents that because he just pushes the pace to a certain degree. But also, even when it does bog down, there's just a level of passing that they didn't have before. You know, like he just he just sees the floor a little bit better than Goran Dragic did. And, you know, he kind of aged towards the latter part of his run in Miami, too. But just that level of juice, that improvisational matter, like he screens for Jimmy Butler, that inverted pick and roll has been pretty good this year when they've been able to do it. And being a little bit more sturdy at the point of attack, like Lowry is a little bit worse defensively than it was over the past couple of years, but he's still solid. And even that just makes Miami's defense a little bit sturdier when he's on the floor. So he he just stabilizes things on both ends. How has Bam Adebayo's role changed? Obviously, he just got back. 
but I mean, haven't seen a lot of him this year. But how has his role changed? I mean, I think just looking at the basic numbers, assists down from over five the last two seasons to just 3.3 this year. Um, seeing less handoff actions with Duncan Robinson. Uh, granted, like that's something defenses have maybe learned how to defend a bit better. Um, how has his role evolved this season for the Heat? I think he's become more of a play finisher this year, which I think is a positive thing for his development because I think he's probably question mark has like a negative connotation, but I think in terms of what do we really have here? Like he's probably the biggest one in Miami because he's obviously an all-star caliber of talent. He's an all defensive team caliber talent. Miami kind of needs him to go from all-star to star, or if you already feel like he's a star from star Mm. to superstar to really reach their ceiling this year and beyond. And I think the big thing with that with Bam is, okay, what kind of creator is he going to be? Like, we know he can catch lobs. We know he can crash the offensive glass. Again, he has the chemistry with Duncan Robinson. Defenses have largely figured out that that pairing over the past couple of years, at least statistically. But but again, like, he can flow into those handoffs with Kyle Lowry. He can flow into it with Max Struess. Like, he can do that and just kind of inject some randomness into your half-court attack. But how can he get his? Does he have the skill set to do so? Like, that's developing. He's a really good finisher. He can get to the free throw line. The mid-range jump is improving. Does he have the mindset? That's the really big thing. Because there were plenty of possessions last season in which Bam flows into a handoff, and he already has a mismatch on him. It's just like, wait, why are you defaulting to the handoff? That may be the quote-unquote right thing to do within Miami system, but like, if you're going to develop into this alpha, sometimes you just got to say, okay, forget the system. I have a six, seven guy on me. Let me put him underneath the basket and get to the line or just dunk on him. And so Do they I think- need that right now, though. Do they need it right now? Like, because you got, you got Lowry, you got Butler. Tyler hero is clearly the sixth man of the year at this point. Um, do, do they need that from Bam right now? I think they do, because I do think they're still kind of running into some problems in the half court and like clutch moments. And like with that, you know, the sample's obviously small, last five minutes of a game or last two minutes of a game or whatever. But it does still feel like a lot of, it feels like hard work for Miami late in games. And they rely on Jimmy Butler a ton. He has not had a good stretch. Uh, the Atlanta game sticks out in my mind where he had some issues. We'll just <laughs> leave it there. Uh, but I think in a perfect world, Bam develops into that because I think he's the walking mismatch Miami has. As good as Kyle Lowry is, as smart as he is, like he is still a six foot point guard at the end of the day. You can throw size on him, it makes it difficult for him. As good as Jimmy Butler is, like the jumper limitations already are, and with him getting to the free throw line as much as he does, it's mostly because of brute strength and tricks. It's not, I'm about to blow by you and you have to foul me to stop him from getting to the rim. He just kind of works that way. Bam is the guy Miami can identify. It's like, okay, this is a six nine dude that is faster than your center, or he's bigger than your forward, or he might, and he might be skilled in bo- more skilled than both. And so he's the guy that Miami points to say, okay, if all this fails, we should be able to give him the ball with eight seconds on the clock. He should be able to get us something. And so that's where I feel like it would solve a lot of problems for Miami if Bam does develop into that kind of go-to option. That's a great point there. I mean, like different types of players here, but just the how you were talking reminded me so much of Jokic. Remember a couple of years ago when Jokic would like have games where he'd take three shots 
<laughs> Michael Malone after games would be, be saying how we need more from Jokic. He's going to be our scorer. He's our guy. And part of being unselfish is accepting, oh, okay, yeah, I am the guy on offense that needs to do everything for our team to win. And, and with Bam, I wonder if that is the next step for him. He's still only 24 years old, still only in the fifth year of his career, even though it feels like he's been around forever. He's had, he's had <laughs> like the career moments, the block on Tatum. He went to the finals. Like he's been around a long time now and gotten better every single season of his career. With him, like like you said, that could be mindset. Um, maybe it's something that needs to develop over the course of time. Um, maybe for Miami, like we'll see it in the postseason. Maybe that's when like all this talent around him, he'll have to do it. But they also do have Tyler Hero, who has taken a leap this season for the Heat after last year. It seemed like maybe he took a little bit of a step back. You wrote on Basketball News recently about him. You wrote... Don't watch the ball with Hero, even when he has the ball. You may miss out on the slightly tighter handle, the cleaner in and out dribbles he uses to reject picks. You'll miss the head fakes he uses to sell his moves, but that's okay. To fully understand the leap Hero has made this season, you have to start with his footwork. That's what you wrote. So what do you like about Hero's feet? They're elite, man. Like, the shot prep is... (laughs) (laughs) Elite, elite feet. (laughs) There we go. Shout out to Rex Ryan. But no, like, he just... The shot prep is incredible. (laughs) The shot prep is incredible for him. Like, he's able to flow into pull-ups and sidesteps basically whenever he wants to. Like, he doesn't have... He isn't super bursty. The handle isn't great. It's good enough to get to his spots. But just the way that he's able to decelerate, he's able to shoot ugly. Like even when even if he is crowded, like he's still able to balance himself. Like he can just in terms of just pure shot creation, like he's really freaking good at it. And it starts with his footwork. Like again, like you can't really bother him. Even when you press him, he's still able to find a way to balance himself, anchor himself, and rise over a shot. And with the kind of touch that he has, like this is why he's able to go on the heaters that he's on, even when it feels like he's well defended. How much of his success, I mean, like, I'm just think, tying this to your thought about endgame situations, postseason, the importance of Bam being able to beat on those mismatches. How, how much of Hero's success is due to that six-man role where maybe sometimes he's not defended by the top opponent on, on the other side? That might be on Jimmy Butler or, or Kyle Lowry or even on Bam. How, how much of it is Hero like, picking on, on these smaller defenders or weaker defenders with the success that he's having in his role? And that's not a, that's not a knock against him. It's really a compliment to him for fulfilling his role at the highest level. No, I think it's a fair point. Like, I think that's certainly part of it. And I think the handle limitations that he does have, the handle has improved since he's been a rookie. But, like, part of the limitations really do shine when, okay, this is a heat game with no Butler in the the lineup. So now that top defender is getting hero late in the game. And then you start to see, okay, wait, he he still needs a pick to get free initially. It didn't even kind of flow into the jumpers or the floaters from there. And so, like, this is kind of what worries me, you know, head play to a game. Because right now, he's probably their best shot creation option. And I just wonder, what does that look like when you face a team that has, you know, two or more good perimeter defenders? Like, if we're eyeing a Milwaukee matchup in the second round or something like that, what does it look like when the Bucks have... Drew and Chris Middleton and Giannis and Dante or Wes Matthews on the floor where Jimmy might still get the top guy, but Tyler's also facing someone that can really press his handle. Like, is that enough? That, again, that kind of shifts it back to, okay, bam, what can you do? But uh, but in terms of hero, like, again, it's hard to sneeze at what he's been able to do this year. Again, just the way that he's able to get to the jumper. He has gotten stronger, so the drives look a bit cleaner for him. The passing field has always been a little bit underrated for him. Uh, again, like, the windows that he can access 
are kind of dependent on who's defending him just because of the handle, because of the burst. But he does see the floor well. Um, so once he gets cooking and pick and roll, particularly against drop coverage, like he can make every decision you need him to. He can go into the pull-ups. He can get downhill a little bit better than he used to. Um, can make pa- can make the skip passes, can make pocket passes. Like he's developed some nice chemistry with Bam, with Dwayne Detman even. He's become a much more talented offensive player. Like, and again, as you said a little bit earlier, I think he's the clear front run for six man of the year right now. Yeah, absolutely. Is I mean, like if you look at FanDuel odds right now, Hero is minus five hundred. Uh, next up is Kelly Oubre at plus eighteen hundred. Montrezl Harrell at plus forty two hundred. Uh, you, you have a face on, like really? That's the next <laughs> one up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like that. That was like one. That's a massive gap. Two. Where is Kevin Love in this? Kevin Love is plus sixty five hundred. So that means if you bet uh, twenty dollars on Kevin Love, you'd win fourteen hundred dollars. Uh, and oh. Kevin Love is not going to win Sixth Man of the Year, but he's that. Those are the odds. Hero's the runaway, though. But who who else is even in it, though? Like, is there anybody that could even sniff first place for Sixth Man of the Year right now? Like, I would wonder. I would worry with Tyler Hero. Like, not that he hasn't been Sixth Man of the Year good, because I think we both agree that he has been. But like, twenty one points per game. Like he very clearly, yeah, yeah. But like the Heat have started him throughout the year when they were missing a bunch of bodies. So like maybe you hit another rash of injuries and then Hero has to start more and then that kind of takes him out. Um, me and Steve did um, a midseason awards episode not too long ago. Um, Hero was number one for me. Number two for me was Kevin Love. It's like he's been really freaking good for Cleveland this year. It's kind of shocking that he's behind. <laughs> he's way behind Harold and Ubre and the odds. That it's kind of interesting to me. Like I would have Love in there. Um, third guy. You want to know who else they have Love behind? Want to know one other name? You're never going to get take one guess. So, like a name that Kevin Love is behind. One guess. It's an Eastern Conference player. Ah, uh, an Eastern you're never, Conference You're never going to guess them. It's like ludicrous. Uh, <laughs> oh, goodness. This should be good. Uh, what division? The Atlantic. Oh, the Atlantic division. Uh, I'm going to tap out. Don't do my bad podcast. Dennis Schroeder. Oh, come How on. does Kevin Love have lower sixth man of the year? I think my guess is the the, <laughs> the, the odds oh. makers here are just not paying that much attention to sixth man of the year. Oh, so. absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. not. 100%. I mean, it was the same thing like with Mikel Bridges. Mikel Bridges at one point, for not that he's going to win defensive player of the year, but Mikel Bridges at one point was like plus 25,000 <laughs> for, for defensive player of the year. It's like, whoa, now. You never this- know. Like, this is egregious. Come on, man. One last thought on the Heat here. Uh, variables. You mentioned, like, maybe Hero moves into the starting five. They've shown they have the ability to do these types of things. Barry Jackson from the Miami Herald tweeted out this morning, Oladipo moving around very well, sinking jumper after jumper on Heat practice court following practice just now. Is Victor Oladipo somebody we're kind of forgetting about right here that Miami has on their roster? Or is that just like an X factor that maybe, maybe comes back? Like, I think he is kind of the forgotten man. That's mostly because, again, Gabe Vincent has stepped up. Max Struess has stepped up. You've got good stuff from Caleb Martin. And so now here's Victor Oladipo, who was supposed to be the X Factor, like those three guys to kind of step up randomly whenever he's available. Now he's kind of fourth on the list, which is insane to think about Victor Oladipo that way. But he is a guy that can give you some secondary playmaking, that can give you some slashing. The catch and shoot numbers for him have been good the last three or four seasons. And so, like, if you give him some spot-up looks, he should be able to knock those down. Like, and he's a solid defender across two, two, maybe three positions, depending on where you put him. So, 
I'd say like he's he be better next. than Caleb Martin though. Would, would he be better? Caleb Martin provides what this team needs. Like what can you? What does Caleb Martin do that's so important for the Heat? One, he takes on really tough defensive matchups. I think I start there with him. Like he's gotten the Trey Young, but he's gotten point guard matchups for them. He's been at the top of their zones when they go to it. And offensively, like mostly off ball stuff for him. Like a lot of spot ups, a lot of cuts uh, when Miami does go to display action. But like he's handled some on ball reps. Like he has some juice as a driver as well. Uh, the three-point shot has improved. Um, we'll see how that tracks as the season goes on. But he he does a lot for this Heat team. He feel, he's been able to plug a lot of holes. So I think for Victor Oladipo, you kind of watch the Gabe Vincent minutes more than anything. Okay, if yeah. Vincent, if Vincent slips at all offensively, then Miami's going to give Oladipo the shot during it. Because like he is the, he's the X factor among that bench right now. And if he's able to provide something, Goodness, those closing lineups can be nasty defensively if you're throwing Victor Oladipo in there. Today's episode of The Mismatch is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Offer valid for new and eligible returning subscribers only. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. Let's talk about the team that won the NBA Finals last year and knocked off Miami. Uh, All the last season, Milwaukee was integrating switching into their defensive scheme. Uh, they were moving away from traditional drop coverage uh, with Brooke Lopez, but you wrote recently on Basketball News an article with the headline, the Bucks are reinventing themselves on defense again. Uh, what are the Bucks doing this season to continue to evolve their scheme on defense, and, and how might that also be a positive for them uh, the rest of the season going into the playoffs as they look to repeat? They have gotten more aggressive in pick-and-roll coverage this year. It's, I think I wrote in the article as well, like how much of that is them just wanting to evolve and how much of that is Brooke Lopez being out. So they kind of have to do something different with Bobby Portis at center. But regardless, they are blitzing a ton. Um, around 17 picks per 100 possessions, uh, according to the good folks at Second Spectrum, which is the second highest rate in the league. They're, pre- they're top five in points allowed when they do show or blitz against the pick and roll this year. And the teams above the teams above them in points allowed they blitz at like one third of the rate that Milwaukee does. So for like in all intents and purposes, like Milwaukee's the best blitzing team in basketball right now. And it makes sense. I mean, you have Drew Holiday at the point of attack, or you have George Hill, who's been having a pretty solid year this year. When you have that kind of length and activity at the point of attack, when you have Giannis roaming behind that, like it, it's just, it's controlled chaos. You're forcing the ball out of the hands. You're forcing the ball into a worse decision maker in theory. And you're trusting a whole bunch of ranging defenders to kind of plug holes behind that. And by the time you try to find a window to attack, now they're recovered. And now you're late in the clock. And now, hey, you have six seconds in a rush clock in a rush context against Drew Holiday. Good luck to you. Or, hey, now you're isolated against Giannis. Good luck getting the shot up. And it's just, it's been a lot of fun watching this Bucks team play defense. You seem to have some reservations about Miami with what they can be, you know, offensively and game situations with the Bucks. Are they the favorite again in the Eastern Conference, in your opinion? They are my favorite. Um, I will say you always have to kind of keep an eye on Milwaukee's half-court offense as well. It's less about their talent and more about their method of attack offensively. Um, I point back to the, <laughs> I guess the emphasis now, the Bulls-Bucks game. 
in which we get the Grayson Allen foul or whatever. But late in that game, their fourth quarter process was really good to start. What made it good to start and what changed in that game? Like they were getting to their actions a little bit earlier in the fourth quarter. It was a lot of Chris Middleton, Giannis pick and roll with an empty corner. And so they were able to flow to that. And this is a thing that I was hammering on the podcast during last postseason. It's like, you can do this. Like clear a side. If they switch it, it's Giannis against a mismatch. If they're playing drop, it's Giannis rolling into an empty side and he's the most dominant paint <laughs> finisher in basketball. And if you give too much of a gap, it's Chris Middleton flowing into elbow jumpers. And like there are maybe five people on the planet <laughs> that are more reliable on that shot than Chris Middleton. And so like it doesn't have to be that static, but that particular action, like it's you're getting a good look at least just about every time now. But like they were starting with that quick hitters with Chris. They were getting Giannis downhill and stuff. And then, you know, they attack Nikola Vucevic and pick and roll. And it's a Drew Holiday ISO turnaround jumper. And it's like, okay, why was that the shot? And then it's Giannis getting isolated against uh, Vuce on the left block, and he takes a turnaround jumper with like 10 on the clock. And it's like, okay, why is that the shot? And so they they have those kind of moments where it's just like, okay, <laughs> let's make sure the process remains sound. Like I can deal with, okay, this, this corner three missed, this shot at the rim missed. But what I don't want is what happened in last season, postseason, where it's like, okay, it's Chris Giannis pick and roll in the middle of the floor. And teams are able to load up on it because of where they're positioned or where they're positioned in their shooters. And it's like, okay, no, let's make this make sense. Let's get the best shooter on the strong side so you can't get help or so, you know, just little things like that. So you want to watch out for Milwaukee within that sense. But ultimately, they have the best player in basketball, or at the very least, they have the best player in the East, if you think Jokic is the best player in basketball. But like they have a top two guy in Giannis, a deep cast behind him. Drew's been all star good. Chris Milton, probably a tier below all star this year, but he's still a very good player. They have a deep bench. The defense, they can stifle you and drop. Uh, if Lopez comes back, like they're going to have that back in their bag. They've shown that they can switch last year, and they have more forwards and guards to downsize when they want to. Shout out George Hill again. Dante DiMincenzo is back. Pat Constant still looks good defensively. Jordan Norris has given them some stuff. We'll see what his role looks like in the postseason. But like he looks like he could be at peace for them. And then you're seeing what they're doing with the blitzing. Like just being able to f- toggle between those different schemes, it's important. We saw how important it was for them last year. They built off of that, and the roster seems deeper and better. So for me, like I haven't been moved off. I have Milwaukee as the East favorite last year. I have them as the East favorite this year. I haven't seen anything to move me off of that yet. If we assume Brooke Lopez is able to return at some point and be healthy, is there a team with a more with more versatile, good options? on defense than the Bucs do. I mean, because blitzing now, drop, switch. I mean, is there anybody that can do what they do as good as they do in so many different categories? I don't think so. Like, I think the only answer to that question is Miami. And that's going to be dependent on help as well. Like, but that's kind of it. The flip side of this is we'll talk about the Utah Jazz. <laughs> they're, they're a team who have had top defenses for years now. They've had a top three defense in four of the last five years, and that's largely thanks to Rudy Gobert. This year, it's the opposite. They're 11th in defense, but have by far the number one offensive rating. They've fallen to fourth in the Western Conference. you got players, including Gobert, questioning if they're actually a contender. Dallas and Denver right on their heels, and that's Denver with Jamal Murray likely coming back around sometime in February. They've lost eight out of their last 10 games. They're upcoming seven games leading up to the deadline, Nikias. Suns on Wednesday, then Grizzlies, Wolves, Nuggets, Nets, Knicks, Warriors. That's in the lead up to the deadline on February 10th. That could be a lot of losses coming up. Why the slip for Utah? What's happening right now? The defense is kind of a mess right now. And like, 
a large portion of that has been Gobert missing some time and Gobert, I don't want to say teed off because that's too sensationalist, but like Gobert had some thoughts about what the defense looked like while he was out. And he, you know, he mentioned building winning habits. It didn't feel like the team was doing that yet. He wanted guys to take pride in playing defense, which is that a shot? Is that not a shot? Who knows? That's your prerogative. But he was right. I don't think it was a shot. I, I really don't. I mean, from Eric Walden, you had this in, in an article as well at the Salt Lake Tribune. His quote uh, was, Devin Booker is playing his ass off defensively. I've been watching him compared to two years ago. Guys like that, they buy in, and you can tell they take pride in playing defense and stopping their man, doing whatever they can defensively to stop the other team and be part of a winning culture. I just think we're not there yet, but I think we're going to get there. So that's the way the quote ends. I think we're going to get there. Of course, you know, adding a little bit of optimism. I interviewed Rudy Gobert last year. He did the same thing with me. Sometimes he would say something like mildly critical and then at the end of it, like add like a positive note as if he's realizing in the middle of as he's talking, oh, I'm talking about my own team here. You know, I'm talking about <laughs> my own situation. Like there was one point when I interviewed him, he was like, let me redo that answer. And I was like, Rudy, like it was, I said to him, I was like, it's fine what you said. You didn't say anything bad. Like there's nothing that's going to get, and he's worried about people getting clicks. But in this case, People did click on that and they did yeah. view it as like a knock. But I really think it was just a, a fair and honest criticism. He's the best defender by far on that team. And who else? Royce O'Neal, pretty good. Mike Conley, solid. Mitchell, when he wants to be, solid. But like there's nobody else that's a good defender on that team. I don't even think it's on his teammates as much as the front office, personally. But like, can they solve this from within? Is there any, any solutions within for Utah? Because their perimeter defense is. It's garbage. I don't think so. Like so, that's so kind of the move then. Yeah, they, they kind of have to, even if they make it through this stretch relatively clean, and that is a ridiculous schedule coming up for them um, as you read that out loud. But even if they make it through this stretch, like at 500 or above 500 or whatever, they need something because they were going into experimental mode this season, kind of similar to Milwaukee last year. It's like even the offensive approach changed like early in the year, just the headline with Utah is like, okay, wait, this was a team that passed a ton and also had a really good offense. Why are they like bottom five and passes per game? And the offense is still clicking while they're not shooting well. And then that kind of normalized. They're kind of going back to their style. But defensively, like they wanted to down have the option to downsize. It's part of why they brought Rudy Gay in in particular and get Eric Pascal in there so they can be a switchy unit. But that unit is not getting it done. <laughs> it's been really bad. <laughs> it's, it's not been good. I like the idea. <laughs> yeah, like it just hasn't been enough. And so now they do need to move, but I'm kind of curious to see like where they go with it exactly. Because it's easy to pinpoint, hey, Utah needs perimeter defenders. And it's like, all right, cool. We all agree. Who are those perimeter defenders that are available in the market? What does Utah have that those teams would want? And that's where I struggle. Um, I floated the question on my timeline a little earlier. It's like, hey, when is Jordan Clarkson, when are they going to look for a Jordan Clarkson upgrade? And even that's touchy because it's easy to point out, hey, this like the volume that he provides in terms of shot creation is valuable, at least in the regular season. There are also some limitations as a playmaker and defensively. I don't really have to talk about it because he doesn't either. So it's easy to pinpoint, <laughs> Hey, maybe Clarkson's a guy <laughs> you move at some point, <laughs> but if, but even with that, it's like, okay, which team needs a Jordan Clarkson who also has like a three and D wing basically on the cuff. How about this? I got an idea for you. Joe Ingles or Bogdanovich, whoever it might be, talk to Boston. How about Marcus Smart, Josh Richardson, both of them, or one of them, especially Marcus Smart? What do you think about that for Utah? Ooh, so Ingles and Bogdanovich for Smart and Richardson? Well, no, 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 just, just w- one of them. Oh, Let's one just say them. Ingles. Moving Ingles for Smart and Richardson, something like that, along those lines. 
that's kind of tapping into my issue. Like if I'm Utah, I'm doing that 10 out of 10 times. Yeah. But if I'm Boston, well, I mean, it's like, you're, okay. you're giving up, you're giving up picks too. Maybe you're giving up Jared Butler and that. I'm just saying as a baseline. As a baseline. Okay. I got you. As a baseline. Like those are the, the key names. Everybody knows those names. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Uh, well then like, yeah, from Utah, like I'm doing that. Like, I think Utah's at the point, especially offensively, like their scheme is really good. And if you have Mitchell Conley and Gobert on the floor, if you have two of those three on the floor, like you're guaranteed to get good looks, I feel like. So I think you're at the point to where you could probably afford to sacrifice some offense for a little bit more defensive versatility. Like, I think you have to kind of trust your guys and trust your system at a certain point. I think you're right about that. I mean, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I pitched, you know, Boyan Bogdanovich and X amount of young players or picks, you know, Butler or whatever, a first for Jeremy Grant with the Pistons. Even then, I'm not sure that might get it done because you got you know, the Hawks, the Kings, among other teams that are calling about Grant. A lot of teams are. I just don't know if it's there for you, Ton. I mean, the, the flip side of this is, you know, they already made one trade to save on the tax. If ownership is in a position right now that they feel like the players might, is this a championship contender? I wonder if this is the year where maybe they shed some salary, get off some contracts, that maybe reshuffle the deck, maybe help the team, um, but also help really set them up for getting back on the tax in a future season. Because because right now, I mean, I'm not I'm not sure what the move it really is that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm just not sure. I mean, like is Marcus Smart and or Josh Richardson or a guy like that really going to put you over the top of a Phoenix of a Golden State? I don't know, but I, I do think it helps though because I, I, like the offense is great enough. Gobert is sensational. I mean, I know, I know people hate on Gobert and he, people make fun of him for, all, for what he can't do on offense, but this dude's magnificent on defense. And I think for Utah, if they're able just to figure out some type of way to succeed when he's not on the court, at least be average when he's not on the court, but, be, but like make it also easier on him <laughs> when he is on the court because there's so many blow-bys on that defense. Like Having better point-of-attack defenders would go a long way. I'll toss this one at you. Like, Is there something to be done with Houston? To where you're looking at a David Nwaba and Eric Gordon. Like, is there something you could package together to get those two? Gordon's been pretty good on defense this year. Like, when he locks in, he's had some great possessions. And offensively, he'd still provide that spark for you. I mean, he'd be a great fit offensively. You don't lose a lot there. Eric Gordon's interesting. I I hadn't thought about him for Utah. Uh, Hmm. That that is good. You get your point of attack D. You get offense. Some shot creation. That that makes a lot of sense. Ingles. And a pick for Gordon, like that type of thing we talking here? Uh, yeah, like I think you start there. I like it. I think that makes a lot of sense, Nikaias. We're, we're good GMs. There we go. Hashtag hire us. Why did they hire Danny Angel? They could have hired us. <laughs> it's pretty true. It's pretty true. I, 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 so I had, uh, when we were DMing about you coming on the podcast today, I, um, you said to me that you liked my note in my column on Monday with all-star voting. Because oh, I wrote man. in there how I had I had a like so the NBA when media votes for all stars you vote for three front court players two back court players and there's some weird stuff in there like DeRozan's listed as back court instead of front court even though it's been more of a four for the Bulls this year but like my issue is is that like I voted for the no brainers in the West LeBron and Jokic and then I had Gobert as my third front court player. And the backcourt was difficult. Like, there's so many different guys you can choose. You know, Steph, Ja, Chris Paul, Devin Booker. And I, I probably would have had Chris Paul in my starting five if I were able to choose three backcourt players. 
I just wish the NBA would change it to either positionless ballot for All-Star and All-NBA, which is a totally different discussion because of the financial implications of All-NBA teams. That's a totally different topic. But with All-Star, it's like, why do they Why do they have three front court? Like, let me, let me <laughs> customize my team. It's a positionless game. Have two backcourt, two front court, one wild card, or just make it all positionless because that's, that's the nature of the game today. I don't know. I, I, I'd love that. Thank you for preaching the gospel in that piece. It's something I yelled about on the pod. I've been yelled about on my timeline for the last few years. Like, I don't, for, within the context of all-star discussions, I don't want to care about positions. I don't want to be pedantic about this. But the funnest players, the best players. There we go. Like, it should just be, hey, five spots on each, from each conference. Who's been playing the best? Or I guess for the fans, who do you want to see? Which can be who's been playing the best, but that's a whole different thing. I don't want to go on that rant today. But, like, give us that. Give us the top five. And I'm cool with that. But if we're going to limit it into two backcourt, three front court, then that's when some of these positions have to go under scrutiny. Like the Easter Conference All-Star starters kind of bother me because it's just like, like for my personal ballot, I think I had, I think I had Trey Levine, DeRozan, um, Durant, and Giannis at the time or something like that. And then, you know, obviously Embiid's been incredible the last month. So like he's probably a starter either way. But I had that because DeRozan's been playing the three and the four for Chicago. Like he should just be a front court guy. But because he's a backcourt, there are so many guards in the East. Like one of those guys are probably going to get shafted this year. Just within the guard pool, like Trey Young, again, Levine, they have the Rosen listed, Fred Van Vliet, Darius Garland, LaMelo Ball. Drew like, Holiday. Drew Holiday. Like one of those guys is probably going to miss out barring like an injury or something just because the Rosen is listed as a backcourt guy, despite not starting in the backcourt this year. And so if this is the method in my, that the league is going to go with two backcourt, three frontcourt, we got to be very sure about who's playing where and get that right. And if we're not, like, it deserves, it deserves to be called out. Like, it's petty. It's ridiculous in the grand scheme of things. Like, functionally, does it matter if the Mars are two or three? No, it doesn't. But if this is the ballot, and ultimately, once you get into Hall of Fame voting, a player that has seven all-star game appearances on his resume is probably going to look a little bit better than the guy that has five. Like, that stuff matters. Like, you can argue if it should, but since it does... We have to get this stuff right. And then it goes to the All-NBA discussion where you have two guards, two fours in the center. It's like, sure, last year, Embiid and Jokic absolutely should have been on the first team. They were both that good last year. However, this is what it is, so it has to be this. I mean, it, the NBA has been a little better with All-NBA. Like they'll, they'll list a lot of guys as guards and forwards or forwards and centers. But even then, it's like, well, is Jokic also a guard? <laughs> I mean, like, is, is LeBron also a five? Because considering he's played half of his minutes at the five this year. And, yeah. and then, like, there's situations where a couple years ago, Chris, for third team all NBA two seasons ago, Chris Middleton got more total points with the vote. But he yeah, didn't make all NBA because Russell Westbrook and Ben Simmons got more votes as guards. And it's like, but Middleton had more points. Like more voters put Middleton on their ballots than Westbrook and Simmons. Like it, it just, I don't understand. Like and, and like, okay, just because he like a voter put Simmons as a as a guard instead of Middleton and Middleton as a forward instead of a guard. Now Simmons and Westbrook. I don't know. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like for 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 all NBA, which has significant implications for players financially never mind the historical implications of when we look back years from now like you said voting on hall of fame or whether it's just like talking about these guys and who they were as players when we talk about the history of the game 
it's important to get the process as great as it can possibly be. And not that it's like totally flawed or anything like that. It's not. It's worked for decades and the NBA is flourishing. But there's always ways to make things a little bit better. And also, I think with the nature of the game today, I mean, what are positions anyway? I mean, players are using so many different roles. It's based on skill, not size as much anymore. I don't know. There you go. Like, you made the point about Jokic. Like, I think he was eligible on the ballot at forward and center. I'm just like, why is he more forward than guard if he literally runs the offense? Like, like explain that to me. A couple seasons ago, I think that Luka was a guard and a forward, but LeBron was only a forward. And it's like, what? Like, it has to be both or none, right? (laughs) Doesn't make much sense. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! I think there are certain teams, like the Dallas Mavericks, who we're talking about next, where they have some guys in, you know, hybrid roles like Kristaps Porzingis on defense more of a traditional big man on offense you have him spacing out at times to 30 feet from three-point range with Dallas they're fourth in defensive rating this season which is really really surprising um, considering their roster you wrote about them why is it surprising that they do have a top defense this year uh, without really like a, a true anchor or any true stoppers there's your answer. Like, who is the, I started the piece with, like, who is the elite guy? Like, you look at the top 10 in defensive rating, like, everyone has at least a guy that you recognize. Mikael Bridges in Phoenix, Draymond in Golden State. Like, Miami has Butler when healthy, Bam when healthy, P.J. Tucker. Like, they have guys. Cleveland with Jared Allen, who's all-star good, all-defensive team good this year. Evan Mo- like, you can just point to, okay, this makes sense. I got you. This is an elite coach. This is the personnel. This is a star. Cool. You look at Dallas, it's like, Okay, what do we have here? How many people outside of the state in Texas and this podcast are right home about Dorian Vinnie Smith? <laughs> right? Like, not many. Not many. Like that's, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, unless you want to highlight the, you know, Maxi Kleba, baby. Yeah, like superstar. <laughs> there we go. Like, you don't have a guy like that. And even in the front court, you're looking at, you know, Kristaps, who has been a good rim protector this year, like you're not talking about him in the Gobert class, the Allet class, the Bamwin Healthy class, the MB class. Like he's a step below those guys. So like they don't have they don't have the elite guy in the front court or the back court. And it's not even it's not even a case of them having like like six B minus or B level players across the roster. Like it's really Dorian Kristaps and you know, Josh Green, when he's out there, he's been fun. But, like, it's really those guys. Frank Nielke, now I don't want to sleep on him. But, like, it's not an elite personnel, I guess is the, the simplest way to say it. But they're still able to do it. Like, it starts with their transition defense, which, simple as it is, getting back and matching up quickly stops those fruitful appearances, you know? And if you're able to get back and stop those easy points, you can able to set your base defense. Like, it makes it harder for offenses to score. Very basic, very boring 
you would like to see like it'd be fun if some young guy just broke out and became the next Mikael Bridges, but like that hasn't happened. It's literally just fundamentals for Dallas. It feels like get back on defense, communicate a ton, execute the scheme. Like Luca looks more energized defensively this year, even though they're still not moving him around a ton. They still switch him and kind of keep him in a general area. But like he's you comparing more, him to like Harden on defense. He said like and more engaged. Like when Harden's engaged, you said he reminds you of Luca. Right. Like you can't, you're not posting up Luca. He's a very strong dude. And again, like if they're running like a side pick and roll or a handoff on Luca's side of the floor, because they typically have him like guarding a guy in the weak side corner. If you run an option, like they're just going to switch it and kind of keep it in front. Like he's not going to be out there fighting over screens and stuff like that, which is fine if you can execute around that. And Dallas has been able to do that. So like, I don't mean that as a slight. It's just like functionally, they are used the same. Um, but even with that, like on the weak side, like Lucas peeling into the paint, tagging the roller and getting back out to close out shooters. He's doing that better than, than he did in years past. That's cool. Tim Hardaway Jr., like he's a guy that I highlighted in the piece. Like he's busting his tail to get back in transition. Like you're not going to confuse him with Danny Green stopping two on ones or anything like that. But just the effort that he's showing, matching up and not getting bowled over, like that shaves a point or two <laughs> off your total. Just being able to execute those little things. And then you get into the actual personnel. Like Kristaps has looked good as a run protector. Master Cleaver does not look like the injured version of himself that we saw in part in points last year. Like Dwight Powell's been fine. Dwayne Finney Smith has been good, overtasked, but he's still been good. And it's just been a collective unit of nailing the little things and not getting beat. Combine that with a little bit of poor shooting from three point range for your opponents, and you have a good defense. You mentioned Kristaps Porzingis. He, he had this block the other night in his big game against the Grizzlies against John Morant and, and it was on the right side of the court Morant was dribbling left into a Steven Adams screen and then as KP was stepping out high to defend Ja Ja went left to right behind the back to go back to his right and KP pivoted to recover Ja went back left pump faked and KP just stayed sturdy in the paint <laughs> arms straight up and used his massive frame to block the shot and it was just, I mean, it was just one, another reminder of just how great Chris Porzingis has been on defense this season. Are they doing anything different with him this year, or is he is he just straight up just playing better? I think it's mostly the latter. Like, in terms of, you know, like, pick and rolls, like, they are playing him a step or two higher. They're not flat out blitzing him. Like, that's not a thing you want to do with him. But he is playing a little bit closer to the screen, which I think helps. And they're, like, passing him off, uh, passing their assignment off to him a little bit more, kind of some late switching when guys get downhill. And they're doing that around the free throw line area. So, like, now it's not, you know, I go back to the Kings last year to where if you run a high ball screen 30 feet from the basket, they're just, it's just a pre-switch. And now it's Rashawn Holmes who can switch out. But it's Rashawn Holmes defending a guy 28 feet from the basket. With Kristaps, they'll, you know, funnel the guy downhill. And then they may switch, but it's in, like, the 18-foot range, the 16-foot range. And so now you're just asking Kristaps, like, hey, just stay steady. Like, you don't have to navigate a whole bunch of space and, and expose, like, the limitations with him laterally. If he can just stay solid within the 18 foot range, like take play with a little bit of a gap, use that massive wingspan of that size. Ultimately, that's just not a lot of space for a ball handler to navigate in. So, like, even that's a way to kind of insulate him and it puts him in a position of strength, like the length, the size. You close off a bunch of areas. Like, if he stays solid, you get the play like you just described, where Ja does a whole bunch of stuff. And Ja is an absurd finisher and can beat bigger players and has done so consistently. That's why he's in the MVP race. But at the end of the day, Josh still six one. Kristaps is still seven three with a massive wingspan. And if he stays <laughs> solid, like there's only so much you can do. Like the fact that Ja can do it makes him special, but it takes special to win that way consistently. And that's kind of the point. More often than not, the size is just going to win out because the size is the size. So Kristaps being more solid 
combined with Dallas putting him in better position to succeed, taking away some gaps early. And then again, like when they do switch him onto a guard, you're already kind of in the painted area. There's only so much you can do. With Dallas, do you buy them as like a top five team right now and on the defensive end of the floor? Um, or, or, or is this a situation here in which uh, either changes need to be made, Josh Green, guys like that need to continue to get better? I mean, how, how is this real? I guess is my question. Like, it's, it's a tough spot for me because, like, they aren't doing anything fluky. Like with like with opponent three point shooting, like it's not like that is a is a yeah, major it's, it's factor not, you're saying. Right. Like it's a little bit of that, but like it's not oh, these teams are shooting like nine percent worse on open shit. Like it's, it's nothing <laughs> yeah. egregious like that. And like the structural changes have been like, hey, talk, get back on defense, rotate a little bit earlier, close out hard. Like it's all stuff that's manageable. So like I don't think what they're doing differently is fake. But my disconnect is still like at the end of the day. Dorian Finney-Smith is a good defender. It's the Royce O'Neal problem that I've been yelling about on the dunker spot for a year and a half. Look, Dorian Finney-Smith is a good defender. The fact that he is their best perimeter defender worries me in a playoff setting. Because if he's getting beat, you don't have a counter. Like I think that's where the flashes from Josh Green are encouraging because he does have this activity level. He does have this brand of athleticism that isn't really matched elsewhere in the wing room for Dallas. So like, if he can develop and be, even if he's not a stopper, if he could be a good defender that gives them another option to toss on guys, right? But like, it's, it's hard for me to kind of disconnect from what the personnel is, even though they're executing at a high level. Once they do get into the postseason, it just gets kind of tough. If I'm not mistaken, like the 4-5 matchup would be Dallas and Memphis, right? Yes. And so it's just like, okay, for seven games, who are you putting on Ja? Like, do you want to give Frank those? Like, if you're playing Frank, then who are you taking minutes from in the guard room? Because you're going to need the offense still. And again, like if you're putting Dorian on jaw, like that's just a speed matchup that you you don't want to do that. You don't want that. <laughs> and then even then, it's, if you do want to do that, one, I don't know if it's gonna work. Two, is it Maxi Cleaver on Desmond Bain? Are you? I don't. It it just gets fuzzy from there. So like, I do think they need another move. Like I would feel better about Dallas moving forward if they had another wing guy that I could really depend on. They're in a tough spot though, because it's like what with what, with yeah. what you know is it is it Finney Smith? He's been involved in some trade discussions, even though he's been been their best perimeter defender. Jalen Brunson has been very important for them. I mean, especially when Luca was out with the offense that he was playing, and now integrating those two guys together. I still, I, I mean, I talked with Charks about this uh, on the Void two weeks ago when he was on, and I still think there's more upside with Brunson and Luca together. It's just like what 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 do you do and. and with Dallas, I'm kind of reminded of a former team that, you know, still, I mean, they hope to be uh, in the playoffs every year, the Portland Trailblazers. And this is a team that, like, is close. They have a megastar uh, with Luka. You, like, they got to figure it out around him. And I'm just not sure what the what the actual move is. And let's talk about the Blazers, though, because they don't have Dame right now. But the, yet they're 7-4 and four in the new year. Anthony Simons is averaging 25 points and seven assists to only three turnovers on 44% from three on 11 attempts from three <laughs> per game. Nikias, you get Nasir Little on defense too? He's hitting threes? Was Nashil O'Shea right all along? <laughs> <laughs> My God, like oh. Simons and Little are killing it, dude. 
they are doing a fantastic job. Uh, I will not be the one to defend Neil O'Shea on this podcast, to be completely <laughs> honest with you. But <laughs> it, I will say it has been nice to see Anthony Simons take the step that he's taken this year. It's nice to see Nasir. First, it's nice to see Nasir a little healthy. That that's 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 the big thing. Like I'm glad that he's playing basketball and he's also looking good. So props to them. But we can start with Simons though. He just has like. I don't want to get into that boy nice territory, but like he just has a shake to him that I enjoy. So fluid. So yeah, he's smooth. he's just a smooth dude. He's got he's like, got great great feet. <laughs> <laughs> we got the podcast Good. episode right here. <laughs> <laughs> But no, like uh, he, true though. Like, like hero though, he's got good hand. Well, I mean, he's got a spectacular handle, but he also has good footwork too. There you go. And like he can just kind of get to his spots and can get to the pull up in a multitude of ways. He's shooting very well. Portland has been emptying the corner a lot with him. And use of Nurkic, use of Nurkic is just mowing down dudes with screens, and that's allowing that's simplifying things for every time. It's just like, all right, cool. If my guy just got washed out by this pick, I'm just gonna flow into a pull up. If you send some extra help, I'm going to take an extra dribble, going to hit Yusuf Nurkic on the roll, who's playing well right now, actually finishing at the basket. I'm not going to slander him today. So, like, they just have the foundation of a simple action that works for them. And while Simon's on his heater, like, you kind of have to send extra attention at a certain point. Like, this isn't a random 40% from three stretch. Like, he's doing it on 11 to 10. Like, he's literally having a dame stretch right now in terms of the shooting right now. So you kind of have to send extra attention. That opens up things for everyone else. That allows the Sear Little to knock down, catch and shoot threes, or to cut to the basket and get fed. That allows him to hit other guys, you know. And if he's playing this well, it makes it a little bit harder to load up on CJ McCollum. Makes it harder to load up on Norman Powell when he's out there. So it's it's just been a lot of fun. And the Blazers need some fun with the last eight months, nine months that they've had as an organization. Like fun is good for them. And Simons has been good and fun. Yeah, Simons has been a lot of fun and little for that matter too. I mean, I, I think with this team, uh, uh, like there, there's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel for them. Like despite some of the issues they've had on and off the court last seven eight months, uh, like if if Damian Lillard is able to get back healthy, uh, and you got some type of moves, I'm not sure what move there is to make exactly. Like the CJ McCollum Ben Simmons stuff has really died down. I personally, with the execs that I have have talked to, haven't heard anything of substance involving C.J. McCollum for any of the other teams in the league. But if they're able to shuffle the deck a little bit, this is what they needed. They needed a guy who could be a stop, a potential stopper for you. Nasir Little, good on ball. Simons, they needed another ball handling presence. And he could make McCollum far more expendable uh, if, you, if you are able to flip McCollum for like a wing or you know a, a larger forward, something like that. But there's still there's, there's pieces there with Portland. Well, what should their deadline approach be? Like this year, like they are within play in range, but like Do you I just want the play I, in? if I'm Portland, I don't. I don't either. I want a top pick. I want. I want odds. Yeah, like make this the soft relaunch. Like it doesn't have to be as drastic as trading CJ now if you don't want to. Though honestly, I feel I felt like that backcourt should be broken up for the last few years. Like I'm not alone in that. Not a hot take, but like I do think at a certain point, like the size matters that the size complications in the backcourt defensively just kind of matter. I mean, how much money do they have committed to, to Dame, CJ, Powell, Simons when he gets re-signed? Like, that's like $100 plus million for four guards. Like, you just can't do it. Somebody has to go. It's just a matter of who it's going to be. Right. And it's similar to the Utah thing, right? To where, like, you have to trust, especially if Dame's healthy, you have to trust that your offense is going to be good enough. 
Like, if you have Dame, you have Simons, and you have Powell, like, you should be okay with saying, okay, CJ, you can go. Or even if you want to keep CJ, you'd be like, all right, cool. Love what you did for us, Norman Powell. Like, the Gary Trent Jr. trade is looking pretty good for both teams, honestly. But, all right, we desperately need an upgrade defensively. You're the odd man out. So, like, choosing one of those two guys between McCollum and Powell, like, that's probably your your ticket, if not at the deadline, then in the offseason. Because over, overall, like, Portland isn't going anywhere until they figure the defense out. Period. That's adding more wing talent. That's getting some more versatility up front. But between those two spots, like, that's where the upgrades have to come before Portland can be serious. Because, like, they have to make a start name. They have the, the hardest part. They have the most important part. They have a star that can just that can be his own offense. Fill it out with some defenders. On the Athletic, John Hollinger had a column about the Blazers earlier this week, in which he talked about some of the things we're discussing here with Simons emerging and all the money they could have to commit to their guards. And he's like, "Well, maybe playing devil's advocate here. What if you trade Dame if to like let's say Philadelphia for Ben Simmons, the Harden package, Simmons plus picks and pick swaps, a young player in there." Is there any logic to Portland going down that path ahead of the deadline, trading Damian Lillard and going with a full-on, you know, totally new roster makeup here? Is there any logic to that? Is there a logic to it? Sure. Like, if you're of the mindset, like, even when Portland gets right or even if they make a move, Golden State and Phoenix is just a tier above them, which, if you ask me, like, I'm probably there. Like, I, I think even if they get it right and Dame gets healthy, like, at best, they probably get four. Because, like, as much of a mess the Lakers have been, like, they still have two megastars. And, like, Portland doesn't have that either way. So, like, if you're of that mindset, then, like, yeah, I get the logic. Is it realistic? Like, no. Like, I think if there were if there was an honest intention to trade Dame, it would have happened a while ago. Honestly. And, like, even with this, if you do decide to trade Dame for, you know, you get Simmons and all this good stuff, like, you bought them out this year. Like, is this even the year draft wise that you get the that you get the guy that you want to end up building the thing around, building this thing around? Like, I don't think so. Like, I'm not a draft nick, so I'm not going to pretend to be. But like, I don't know. Like, is let's say Portland trades Dame, they bought him out this year, and they end up with a top three pick. Like, is Jabari Smith going to be the guy? Is Chet Holmgren going to be the guy? Like, I don't know. Like. I feel like this is a question that would make more sense for me like next year if they're in this spot because that puts them in range for in that 2023 draft, which sign me up for anything Victor Wimbenyama, honestly. Ooh. But <laughs> V-Dub, he's amazing. I love that too. Yeah. But like, yeah. I, so again, I guess the answer, like I get the logic. I just don't, I don't see it. I agree with you, man. I, I think this year, you you don't need to trade Dame to have good lottery odds. You you can have good lottery odds missing the play-in without trading Damian Lord. All he needs to do is just miss the rest of the regular season. Take it take it slow with this abdomen surgery, real slow. Hey hey Dame, we don't we, we don't need you back. Let's let's try and get some <laughs> run here. I mean, don't come back here. So I think, I think like they can get like I don't know the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth best lottery odds, and that's enough to move into the top three. You know, in terms of the percentages with the change lottery odds, it's just after changing the lotto odds, I used to be all about blowing up for these teams that were stuck in the middle. You, you can't like it is not as clear cut of a path without the 25 percent incentive to get the number one pick up top that teams previously had in the past. It's at 14 percent now. Hey guys, how you doing, man? Like, how, how's life with you, man? How are you enjoying the season? You're living in a different state now, right? Where are you at now? I'm in Charlotte now. You're in Charlotte now. What, what's Charlotte like? Are you enjoying it there? How, how are you? 
one, I'm doing well. Like this has just been the busiest NBA season of my life. Uh, this is the first full season of the dunker spot. So it's a lot of potting in addition to riding, like I'm traveling and going to games and stuff now. So it's been a little bit hectic. Uh, Charlotte's a cool place. Like I haven't super explored it. Like I moved here last January, but like that was in the pandemic. So I just didn't do much. Things are opening up a little bit more now, but like opening up and being safe are two different things. <laughs> so that's a thing. But like overall, like I'm doing fine. Like life is pretty good. I'm in a good spot. I mean, you're killing it, dude. For real. Seriously. I mean, I had you on a pod last year and we talked a little bit about getting your start writing on like Facebook and stuff. It's uh it's crazy. It's crazy to see your eyes, man. And I think also with like it's the workload and the volume, but also the quality together uh, with everything you put out. I just I just see that, and I really appreciate everything that you do, man. And I think you do a, a sensational job of combining education but being entertaining. You know, blending those two is what I think fans deserve. You know, more than anything else, watching the sports or whatever it is, whatever your interests are educational and entertainment you check both those boxes man I, I love your stuff dude you're one of my favorites i appreciate it man i feel the same way about your stuff man thank you for having me on and like just in general like this is kind of what i feel like that's what nba media needs to be it needs to be engaging and also fun in general like nba content has never been smarter than it is right now you just kind of have to know where to look for and where to get it from because like the x's and O stuff is out there the cap stuff is out there the transaction stuff is out there like the youtubers all- man the YouTube yeah. Ben Taylor. I had him on recently. Gibson Piper with half court hoops. Like they're like, never mind Jake Alman now with the ringer. It's like there's so much great content out there covering the NBA and so much different styles of content too, whether it's the analysis or entertaining stuff. Yeah, as more as more people pop up doing what we do, like I feel like it's gonna be better. Like NBA coverage in general is gonna be better for it as we get more people with not just doing the content, but giving them platforms as well. No doubt about that, man. You had like Jason Maples on too, right? And Jason's awesome. Like he he's like like one of my top Twitter followers. Like he's outstanding. <laughs> yeah. So like, and that's what you do. Like you you pinpoint the kind of content that vibes with your content, but also give people a platform. And like not that either of those guys needed me to give them a platform or anything like that. But it's just like that's how you kind of grow the community. You pinpoint those guys, give them, give them a bigger microphone, more people get to them, now they get better opportunities moving forward from there. Like that's how we, you know, that's how that's how it gets better. I think Jason Maples is one of the the best doing it right now because he because he he mixes like some hard hitting analysis sometimes, but then also like he's just fucking funny. <laughs> yeah, like, he just, like he's just funny. <laughs> like that's the people. That's how you vibe with people, man. Like I made the tweet I think yesterday where I was like, my account isn't a basketball account; it's a personal account with a bunch of basketball talk on it. And like that's like more people should do it like that. I, I get to tweet more. I don't tweet as much anymore, Nikias. I don't. <laughs> I, feel, I feel. I feel. I'm at the point, and you might get to this point at some point, like where I do so much work that like Twitter has just taken a back seat for me. I just haven't put as much into Twitter, which is t- it's hard, man. But I don't know. I got. I got to carve out the time. I got to make the time. Less Warzone, more tweeting. <laughs> well, at the very <laughs> least, if you're playing Warzone, hop on Twitch, man. Like it's it's so oh, it's yeah, so no, easy to stay no. connected. It is, man. Nikaias, I appreciate you joining me today, man. This was fun. No problem, man. You have a good one. Well, that's going to wrap up today's episode of The Boy. Thank you to Nikaias Duncan for joining. Thank you to Jesse Lopez for producing. And thank you to you for listening to The Void. It really means a lot. Please give us a five-star rating where you're listening to the show. Subscribe or follow. Pass it along to a friend. It all really helps. Thank you again. I hope you have a fun day. 